I'm Maeve Doyle, and you're listening to A Private View. Uh, On today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing Julie Curtis. For the past few years in London, the only name on anyone's lips has been Julie Curtis for the incredible visuals she's creating around hair and hands and female form, uh, mixing surrealism with a type of pop art. So I'm pleased to have Julie Curtis on the phone now. Hi, Julie. Welcome to A Private View. Hi, Niv. Thank you for this very generous intro. (laughs) It comes from the heart. I think that you're doing really interesting things with your painting in sort of a quiet, calm, uh, maybe subliminal way. Um, When I look at it, I see your work as highly feminist to a certain extent, um, dealing with a lot of issues around sexuality and subconscious longing. And maybe there's a little bit of critique on what we value in in people and what we look for in people. But that's a big topic to to jump into right away before we've even said a formal yeah. hello. So why don't I start with hello and how are you? How are things in Brooklyn? Things in Brooklyn are are good. I think it's, um, you know, it's summer finally, and um, things, you know, have been more peaceful and quiet. We haven't had so much of that for a long time. I'm understanding again why I love New York so much, as seeing it, you know, back, like coming back a little bit to before this crazy year and a half we had. Let me jump into you, you being born in the early 80s in Paris uh, and living in Brooklyn. Tell us about who you are and and what you think of as the moment that you knew you were going to be an artist. Where was the starting point in that? So I grew up in the Paris suburbs. Uh, Montreuil is um, is a city really close to Paris, a bit of the, the you know, the Brooklyn of, of Paris. Um, my mother was French. My dad is Vietnamese, uh, so multicultural household, and I'm um, an only child. So I had a lot of time to kill on my own. I, you know, I my parents really, you know, tried to fill up my schedule with um, music classes, dance classes. So very early, I had like um, a very like cultural, assimilating upbringing. We went to the museums quite a bit um, and traveled. You know, we went to Vietnam when I was a small child. Um, so like like I said, like I had a lot of time on my own. So I kind of lived a bit in my bubble, in my little world. And I, I drew a lot. Um, I dreamed a lot. I kind of spent a lot of time in, on, in my own head. And then eventually when I became a teenager, I think I went through a rough patch where I had lots of anxiety. Um, And art became very early on a way for me to kind of make sense and kind of uh, uh, exercise a little bit that anxiety and and transform it and transform it into something more positive. And that anxiety uh, in your younger years is what a lot of artists face. And the peace they find is in the artwork. It's almost as though it's... it's, um, 
It's a way of them navigating life, which can be quite startling and alarming and confusing. And, and it is the, the way their practice evolves that makes them connect with the life they're living. And I know with your work, so I'm guessing with your person, and, and if I'm guessing wrong, um, take this as me projecting onto what you do, and then we'll take it from there. There's, a, there's often disturbing visuals and strange uh, observations and... Um, things that don't make sense that mm -hmm. I like looking at in your canvas, but, but without the canvas, when that's happening as you're living your life, it can be a bit jarring. How did we get to your sort of strange, wonderfully strange, <laughs> surreal, ambiguous, sometimes suggestive narratives? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. So I started therapy when I was... 15 years old and I think yes I think psych psychoanalysis really you know opens one's to to uh, one's one person to their their inner world to their dreams um, to this sub subjective imagery um, you get there's such a rich world and in a way you have to listen to yourself and when you dream you have to listen these are all messages that are being you know coming to you as riddles um but you once you know you know some you know some dreams are just like a little bit of nonsense or a little bit like byproduct or you know waste from your day lived but then you have other dreams that's Jung would call luminous and you know when those dreams are meaningful it's because when you wake up and you remember them you're like oh oh my god that what a crazy dream what was that about you know there's a meaning to it and so those are the dreams you should listen to and in a way like I think my my art has to my my, my art um years after years started to maybe kind of emulate a little bit that process. Um, and, and there's a part of me that, you know, like when a, in everyday life, my process looks like that. I just, um, you know, I woke and I, I ruminate thoughts and I look at things, I observe things. And then from one observation, I, I kind of let my mind kind of free associate with other things. So it's very intuitive. And then I'm like, when an ID, an, an image, an idea under the form of an image kind of strikes me as really exciting. I just capture it, but I just never try to pin it down too literally or too much because then it really kills the desire to make it. I just try to keep that that right kind of like um, uh, ambiguity or that right kind of like not thinking it through too 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 deeply. So I bring that back home. I sketch it. I'm trying to understand what's the essence of that image. And then eventually when I make it often, that's when you get really frustrated because uh, you have to translate that image into the real world. And there's, and it, it kind of kills it, right? In the process, something about it gets lost. And that's when you have to kind of be receptive to what it is that you're painting. And at the end, often I add a last little thing into the painting that was un, unplanned. You know, sometimes the image itself is not enough, and then you 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 work with what you have on the canvas, and that's where you have yet another layer added to it. That's completely improvisational. 
Let's go back to your relationship with food and hair and nails and faces. Yes. So that that um, like you say, like it's um, these are like little details or little things that are in ways refer to something bigger than themselves, and that like you say that are archetypes or stereotypes that do belong to everybody that everybody has their own associations with, but especially like in the context I'm using them, refer to like maybe a female archetype that's more contemporary, you know, that's a lot in in movies or in the language of commercials, Um, you know, the cigarette, the hand, the manicured hand with a cigarette is an old, the beginning of the 20th century kind of um, new iconography. I don't know if you watched the the documentaries of um, uh, Adam Curtis. Uh, no, like but the name's British. familiar. So he did this a very interesting series called um, "The Century of the Self." Right. Uh, the century you would love the century of the self, but he's so he's talking about the cult of individualism in modern society, but also manipulation through. Uh, you know, like um, consumerism and capitalistic society. But like he's talking a lot about Bernays and uh, commercials and how to make uh, a people like desire something. Um, And he talks about, he has this really funny anecdote that really stuck with me um, of, you know, like cigarettes being always like a a product that was more, uh, you know, targeted to men uh, and culturally not, really well, um, you know, like it wasn't well seen if you were a woman smoking at the beginning of the 20th century. But then there was this kind of like psyop, like um, uh, commercial psyop where women would, you know, demonstrate in the street protests in the streets for like women's rights. And at the same time, they would like hide cigarettes. There'd be a whole psyop operation where women would pull out cigarettes from their jar tails. You know, their their yes, it was a political statement. Exactly, making a political statement, but also and then lighting up their cigarettes as you know, like like freedom or something like a gesture of freedom, but also something very phallic about pulling out the cigarettes from in between their legs. Um, Yeah. So. this this kind of like psychological uh i'm really interested in this kind of like those very just psychological associations and their their impact on the collective unconscious and and um i don't know so i think this is a kind of imagery i'm interested in exploiting um and you can see how hair and nails and food all have sexual connotations about, but also consumer connotations, mm-hmm. uh, the theater of hair and nails and food. It, I mean, I it's rich. It's rich. And when, when the food in your paintings becomes hair, it's a nightmarish quality. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm. You know, I, I don't. Some, like people always ask me, "What's what's the hair about?" And I think they were for me in. You know, I've always been obviously a bit fascinated with hair, but, you know, I was really interested in Victorian hair art. And so this lady is like collecting hair from relatives and create these, these very elaborate scenes of, you know, of a fa- flower composition made out of hair from the different family members. So it's like a kind of really interesting uh, artistic kind of 
practice. Yeah, and you and, linked it with Japanese hair art as well, mm, and also yes. with things like Medusa and and the Greek myths around hair turning into snakes. Exactly, and all this <clears throat> that and you know finding my mother's hair in, in a suitcase when I was a teenager and my aunt's hair as well, and then me too starting to cut you know braids of my hair and keep them. I don't know. It just became some kind of weird thing with me and I started to use actual hair in my art and recently was more about just painting it which is a form of like knitting and hair becomes like something else than hair it's becoming like a, a life force almost hair is um, organic and amorphous kind of substance um, a binding thing between people and it's something spreading well, and, and let's let's talk about Merritt Oppenheim's iconic furline teacup. I mean, there's also mm-hmm. that. These are these are really associated things that are forever with us, whether it was hundreds of years ago or now. Hair has always been an issue, an iconic one, as you say. Uh, but you've made it very contemporary. So I think people know that you have worked with Cause. People know that you have worked with Jeff Koons uh, and, and that sort of immersion into other successful artists careers must have had some sort of effect on you as well uh, yeah so I worked I guess not with Jeff Kinsel with cause I worked for Jeff Kinsel for cause as one of Did the Did you like the way I worded it there didn't you <laughs> that was really no but because yeah it's like <laughs> me in like the in the, in the Queen's factory was just very interesting as an experience very formative and working with, for uh, cause is also was extremely formative as well. Just observing how he's like having a business and all that. I, I don't know how much of their own practices inspired me because, um, you know, these are especially Kunz is like a huge. I mean, I really admire as an artist, but his operation is so huge, and that's nothing, not, never something I'd like for myself as I really like to keep my practice really close to me. It's much more intimate. And I like to have, um, yeah, a very intimate conversation with, you know, between me and my practice. From, so I don't know if I could ever scale up anything. Yeah, um, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that. I suppose what I was getting at was it, it was remarkable to me that you hadn't waitressed or had another. It was always art jobs. And that was. What oh, was. no, I have. I had like side jobs. I worked, you know, in a coffee shop. My first job was coffee shop. I worked in retails. I um, I worked in France as uh, I had like, you know, a lot of small jobs um, as hostess or whatever, you know, like mm. I had 10 years of even, yeah, 10, 10, 12 years of solid, like, gigs. And then I had maybe six, seven years of art assistant jobs, which were definitely an upgrade. And then it's only been recently since I've been full-time on my art, which was never something I thought I'd ever achieve. And never in my wildest dream would have thought, would I have thought that I would be, you know, working with galleries like White Cube or Anton Kern Gallery. I do get that. So uh, you may have already covered this, but what cultural experience changed how you see the world and why? Hmm. Yeah, it's really difficult (laughs) uh, to think of only one. I think it was, um, you know, it's like like an hologram 
or like uh, no say holographic kind of image because yeah, so you're born in one culture you, like your understand cultural understanding is like two-dimensional and then you go to another culture and then you kind of start to understand things a little more in um 3d right and so the more cultures you kind of become acquainted with the more depth you have understanding like you know how uh, yeah how, what's what's the how does one uh, culture influence an individual and we, how we made out of all these different parts and me growing into french culture was one thing and then at six years old i went to vietnam with my dad and my mom and at that time vietnam was still extremely communist and it was a bit of a cultural shock to see how different people are living and see also be confronted for the first time to object uh, poverty and then you know my dad's story is really complex but basically my dad had left Vietnam in at a difficult time in after the second world war in the 1950s a very and difficult so, time yeah yeah so when we came he had lost his family and when we came back we found his family again so discovering I had a whole side of the family and they were basically peasants you know and a very different culture. So that was yet another understanding. Uh, that is profoundly overwhelming on, on a mm -hmm. personal, on a political, on a social economic, on a mm -hmm. cultural class, like so many ways that is overwhelming. How old were you? Uh, I was six years old. Mm. So it was, in a way, it maybe it would have been more more of a shock a bit later, but at six, you're still kind of malleable. But still, it was like kind of discovering there's a completely different world out there. And it's a world that belongs to me too, because I'm half that. Um, so that was interesting. And then I think the third, I mean, yes, I did travel to Germany, I traveled to Japan, but I think the, the most important third one, of course, was America which in many ways is so completely different from France. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So really discovering a different culture and something, a newer culture, a very vital culture compared to France, which is really kind of, has been, you know, really slowed down lately. In, in America, as crazy it is, it's really vibrant. Um, yeah. And you're still always a bit on the outside. The one thing I would say, if I were to sum you up in only four or five words, I, I'd say that you're comfortable out of your comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. And that's why the concepts of the individual or oh, these are the whole Jungian things or therapeutic relationships or dream analysis or actively imagining while you're around people come so easily to you in a sense. And I, yeah, and that trip when you were six would have had a profound effect. I can see why. Um, <laughs> yes. and, it, and it makes a lot of sense when I look at your work now. I'm, I'm going to move on to the next question. And this is about artwork from artist past or present. And if you could have any work of art that you could live with, what would it be? Well, you don't have to pay for it, by the way. You could you could own <laughs> it without paying for it. And you could have it from the past to the present, what would it be and why? Well, I think I'd know what it'd be because me and my husband were obsessed with that work. 
and yeah, so it, it would be, and I'm sure you're familiar with it because I think you had it displayed in, in the UK. Uh, it would be Christian Marquez Clark. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think it's wow. really hard to get your hands on that one, but like a, just a room in our house where we can just go there and be in Christian Marquez Clark. That's world. beautiful. That's beautiful. You can have it. That's great. You don't even have to tell me why. Yeah. Did you see it? Yes. Yeah. I didn't do it's 24 fantastic. hours. We did like quite a few hours. I think we did like, the most we did probably was like five hours of it. Um, my husband uh, actually, when he came out at Polar Cooper Gary in New York, my husband was working for Polar Cooper. So he, you know, he was, he had the, the luck of installing it and, um, you know, being really familiar with the work. And then we could get in easily because it was soon enough they got there was like a line around the block to see the piece but i don't know of any other piece maybe besides a, a yayoi kusama you know installation i don't know any other piece that people were willing to like wait eight hours to get in you know this it was that it was that um influential although i would say the other artwork that excited me just as much maybe even more was uh, you know Matthew Barney when the Cremaster series came out I, I, that was extremely that was big for me that was me too huge. Yeah. very influential yeah all of those something ones. we had Kusama, never seen before Matthew Barney Christian yeah. Markley yeah. yeah yeah how would yeah. you put words to the link between those artists I'm not sure yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, they're extremely uh, powerful and uh, popular pieces of work. So they're definitely, but they're also really outside of the box. Like you don't see many, you know, it just didn't create like huge, uh, um, you know, school of thought or school of, like you didn't see that many people following the trends of that kind of practice. So in ways was really unique, very, very, very innovative, but also, yeah, really hard to kind of rival or continue or even for themselves, you know. Like once <laughs> I can I can imagine being like Christian Markland trying to keep making art after the clock. I'm sure I mean sure it does like, even for Matthew Barney it was really hard to kind uh -huh. of Keep I'm, it up like this. But here we go. What are you going to do after Monards and Dyards, Julie? Um, I mean, that I could say the same thing to you. What could you possibly do after this? Well, I don't know. It's like it's I, such a great show. I, well, I'm really glad. Like this really makes me happy. What you're saying. You know, I like, saw I Jay Joplin on the floor like, showing, talking about your work to collectors. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, yeah, so um, I don't, you know, it's like I, I don't, I see where I can progress. I will see where I can improve on. And there's so many themes that I like to touch and I, I, I have a hard time knowing the way I'm going to go on about it. I, I'm always limited by my, by my technique. I'm always limited by, I just always feel like I can do something better. And I really don't feel like I've pulled out yet my best work and and I just I just feel like today especially there is so much going on in the world and I really want to 
I don't want to react to what's going on in the world, but I definitely want to process it. I want to create something significant. And I really feel so far from it. So I don't know, for me, it's like, um, you know, Monad and Dad was definitely, um, I think the most ambitious maybe works I've done so far. And I just hope that I can continue, continue, just continue. I feel like there's so much to do and to improve on. I, I brought young women to the show that I work with and they were so, they're so uh, dedicated to following you and your work now. They're, you spoke to them on some deep level of about things that they can't uh, verbalize, which oh. is wonderful. But I guess to move on from that to the question of, I do still want to pin you down on what you're doing next, but what is the reason for art? It's funny. I'm glad you asked the reason because like I was asked, like I had to also like do, um, I did another interview and they were asking what's the purpose of art, which kind of was in a way kind of, for me was a bit beside the point um, as if there was a purpose or yeah, you know, tell us the purpose of life first, and way. then we'll get to art. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's that, like, that, that's like the, the exploration. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, I just feel like, okay, we do, as individuals, we do have purpose. Yes. And I see art more as a, a vector or as, um, as something, you know, a... Um, a vessels, you know, something, a transform, like, you know, and it's, it's interesting because the reason of art is also another hard one. And I don't know if I'm, I'll be able to answer that one, but okay. My husband and I, I Clinton his, King is your husband, the painter Clinton, Clinton King, King. I'm putting yeah. out there. Yeah, I'm going there. <laughs> He's like an amazing artist mm-hmm. who's going to have a show at Carl Castiel yeah. at, uh, in next February. Exactly. Um, he's, um, Anyways, he's a fascinating person and I love sharing my life with him because he's always like having all kind of thoughts. He's, he's like the most curious person you've ever met. Wonderful. He's also kind of uh, like, inc- like he's, yeah. I, I don't know, sometimes you don't necessarily want to talk that at 8 a.m. when you wake up about <laughs> all kind of dreams and crazy, you know, like symbols and all that stuff. Sometimes it's a bit tiring, but um we you know he's really interested in the alchemical part uh, process and I, I don't know anything about it. he knows everything about it about alchemy but like we often it comes down to what is it that when you boil him down is that alchemy you know the process of making gold the gold is not beautiful the aim the, it, it, it's not about gold gold is a symbol is the process the, the gold is in the process I would say the same thing about art. It's, it's like also the journey. Is the journey, is, is the goal of the journey is going from one point A from, to point B? No, it's not. It's the, the, it's the, um, the journey itself that's, that's the, the journey itself. You, know, it's, it's, you understand what I mean? Well, I wrote this so down about you. It's a bit similar. Mm. I wrote this down about you earlier and I thought, you know, Julie, it seems to me that Julie Curtis thinks that the alchemy of life is to combine your influences and elevate them into something better. Yeah, you have to work with what you have. And um, something more magical, something for everyone. And something can be transformed in the process of like working from what you have. Yeah. Everybody has stuff they can work from, from everybody. Um, and it's all about skills. It's all about what 
you know, it's not like material necessarily. It's more about the know-how and the thought and things that are not material. And the magic. They're, yeah, they're in, invaluable. Yeah. So process would be the, like the art. What is art? What's the reason for art? I mean, art is another vehicle. It's just a way to, to go there. To You can do so many things with art. And the reason is the same reason as anything else, like whether it's like scientific research or anything else. It's like, but it, it is, it does something different. And it, it so. is maybe the last institution of um, spirituality. I'm, I'm a little worried that we're kind of losing some of that, you know, the, the, you know, religion and church is like getting a little, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person, but I, I can see I, I'm just, I'm just wonder where is the place for spirituality? It's interesting. Today? I just heard an interview where some uh, a, a, an artist who was in her 90s said that the school she uh, studied at had just dropped a program called the Bible and Semiotics, and she was so disappointed mm-hmm. that they dropped it because, similar to you, she's not necessarily a religious person, but understanding the semiotics and symbols of religion really gives you a visual language. That taps into spiritual spirituality. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I've, it's like people associate to religion or to to church, but it's it's not. There is so much knowledge was conveyed through religious texts, and I, I don't know enough about it, but I, I I I can acknowledge that. I can see it. You know. I've kept you for much longer than I said I would. So before (laughs) before I let you go, I just want to say, is there anything else about what you're working on, what's coming up, or just what you want to say politically, socially, about feminism, all the things that I think are the reason for you painting, that you get through to people on a subliminal level where the argument's gone. Once they've seen your work, they can't unsee it and your point's been made. So it was, uh, I know the reason for your art. I know it, I know it in in, in my gut, but um, but thank you for answering it anyway. Is there oh, anything? Thank you. It's a pleasure. Oh, I don't know. It's so hard. I mean, I can at least, you know, I feel like I could go on and on forever with you know this kind of discussion which I find so interesting and I wish I knew more but um yeah I can just say that uh what's gonna come next I'm gonna have a show with um Anton Kern Gallery um in separate September 2022 so I am really looking forward to this upcoming year uh to explore new themes and and really just I just really want to paint for myself and not take on too much but yeah, I just want to deliver, you know, quality show and take my time. And I hope, you know, I hope there's space for that. There's we continue to give space for like not crazy race toward production, but just you know, produ- producing things of 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 uh, real value. And uh, yeah, so that's all I have to say. And. Um, I'm really, I really hope we can meet next time I'm in London. I hope so too. (laughs) I hope so too. I I know you're uh, incredibly busy, but the thought of having you here in London in the studio and being able to talk to you in person is uh, something I look forward to. So you're welcome anytime you're here. Julie, thank you so much. And thank you for putting on Monads and Dyads. Uh, I, I know that it moved and changed a lot of people's thoughts and feelings and untangled a lot of 
problems that young women have just relating to an identity that they feel is sometimes forced on them. I'm not putting mm-hmm. that responsibility on you, but I'm saying your work with mm-hmm. archetypes and symbols did help a lot of people. And I think uh, your work is brilliant. So anything oh. and anytime you're around for another conversation, I'm there. Uh, if anyone wants to watch what Julie does, which is a lot, even though she says she doesn't want to be busy all the time, she's curated a show about shoes. You're working on uh, AR projects. Is that what you call it? Virtual yes, reality uh, projects. Yeah, and actually it might be in display with acute art, I think in September or October. Um, so I'll, I'll uh, communicate about that, but follow what acute art is doing in terms of AR. It's really fascinating. Also, Julie will also alert you to other interesting emerging artists that you may not hear of or have heard of before she's Uh, highlighted them on her Instagram. So I'd suggest if you don't already, go to Julie Tiet Curtis on Instagram and and watch what she does. That's spelled uh, Julie, T-U-Y-E-T-C-U-R-T-I-S-S. Thank you so much for being on A Private View and talking to me today, Julie Curtis. Thank you, Mev. And bye for now. Thank you for listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. I have over 30 years experience in several different countries in the art world and I'm still learning the changing landscape and lexicon and look of what is and isn't the art world and what artists do and don't want to express. So I hope you enjoy taking this journey with me and listening to artists talk in their own voice on A Private View, the podcast. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe to the podcast. And on a separate note, the music for A Private View was made specially by Korshid Homi. He has a show on Soho Radio too, so look him up. And thank you for listening. <laughs>